1: and welcome to what goes up a weekly markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, investors did sell in May, but they didn't stay away very long and now as we speak, the S&P is more or less unchanged for the month. What exactly should we make of this pause in a raging bull market, especially now that some of the economic data is disappointing but inflation readings are surprising on the upside? We'll get into it with a global market strategist in London. But first, Charlie Pellet, tell us who this week's mystery co-host is.
2: This week's mystery co-host is Eric Wiener. Wiener is a markets editor for Bloomberg in New York who actually wrote a history of modern Wall Street called What Goes Up, though he claims he's not bitter at all that Mike Regan stole the name for this podcast. His hobbies include watching hockey and informing Regan of all the things he was wrong about. You
1: know... Eric, I had hoped you actually had other hobbies, but I think that's pretty much it, right? Th- those two.
2: That, that pretty much covers the whole thing. Um, basically, I sit around <laughs> watching hockey and then wondering what you're saying wrong. Uh, <laughs> and and I'm I manage to to do both quite well.
1: That's that. Yeah, you do, you do. That's uh, you know, and I'm also I, I'm conflicted about Charlie getting a a promotion for your book into that intro. I, I don't know how to feel about that. As you know, one of the risks of being a financial journalist is so many of your friends end up having books and you have to sort of pretend like you've bought them and read them. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to buy your What Goes Up book. Um, I might even buy there's a collector's version of it on Amazon that's actually cheaper than the regular version. I don't know how that works, but I might buy that
2: one. Go go just spend money, man, Uh, (laughs) whatever you can possibly do, because you did rip off my title, uh, which is how I sold the book. Um, when <laughs> the the original, it was funny, I did it during the dot com era, and the original title had a question mark. Uh, and then as the whole thing fell apart, it just became what goes up. Uh, because at first it looked like things were never going to stop going up. And well, then it stopped.
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, without promoting your book any further, I will say it's a it's a very interesting concept. You basically talk to a bunch of Sort of titans of Wall Street, and and it's the whole history of Wall Street told in their words, which I find interesting. Not because I don't find your words interesting, but I'm I'm already a big consumer of of your commentary, so I, I it'd be interesting to see uh, how how you did this. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to get that Amazon purchase one of these days.
2: Yeah, it was it was actually fun but hard to do. I mean, you got to track down like uh, thousands of the richest people in the world who are very busy and really don't want to talk to you. Um, but getting it in their words is very different than having us journalists kind of explain it. So it's much more like the story is being told to you in a room full of all the most important people in Wall Street history, and they're coming at you and sort of telling you their view. Uh, so it, it's unique in that sense. And
1: it's uh, it's interesting because our guest this week, I, I recently had a, a similar experience with her for the Business Week how-to issue, where we basically uh, reached out to smart people to get in their words how they would uh, how they would do certain things. And so we talked about how to do sixty forty in in this low interest rate environment, which is a perfect segue to our very important Wall Street Titan we have on the show this week. She is the actually a, a city of London Titan, I guess. Uh, if if you consider Wall Street running through london, which which I very much do. Uh, but she is the chief strategist at Principal Global Investors. Uh, her name is Seema Shaw. Seema, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you very much for having me back.
1: Okay. And let's start with that idea that I, I uh, mentioned in the intro, Seema, in that it seems like this euphoric rally that we've had. Uh, someone hit the pause button in May. I, I'm almost tempted to wonder if, you know, the whole reopening of the economy is almost a, a sell the news uh, event, or at least not a continue to buy with both fists type of events. But I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is On this kind of sideways market that we've seen over the last month, especially because it corresponds with really the the height of the economic reopenings, as well as some data that's kind of lackluster, you know, uh, uh, some misses here and there. The city surprise index has come down, but the inflation readings are are still pretty hot, you know, transitory or not uh, being the question on everyone's mind. But I'm curious. How you're sort of sizing up the environment right now, uh, given that risk assets, at least here in the U.S., are kind of sideways. Um, Is it changing any of the thinking about the the main themes of this year for you to see this pause?
3: Well, I think it's fair to say that the U.S. is probably reaching peak recovery. And having said that, look, the fundamentals are really, really strong. So although it's hit a peak and you're seeing activity um, no longer probably accelerating uh, as much as it was, it's still resting at a really high level. So I think that's the main thing to remember. So fundamentals are still really strong. I think the key thing here is though, is you know, when we all came into 2021, we all knew, or we were all hopeful that there would be an economic reopening. We were all hopeful about fiscal policy. We all knew that there would be some kind of inflationary pressures at some point in 2021. But what we've seen happen is that all of those things, all of those factors and those themes were pushed forward to like the Q1 and Q2 of this year. So much, much earlier, all compressed in a really short time scale. And I think the market has just run out of steam. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a correction.
2: So when you look at, Mike mentioned inflation, uh, how do you see this sort of reflation playing out? If, if you're, a, say, a stock market investor, how do you respond when as you say it's sort of played out in the us but there could be more coming and it looks like prices are going to rise do do you rotate into different asset classes How, how do you handle this
3: yeah this is going to be a really interesting dimension now for investors because what we're seeing is inflation is clearly picking up but it isn't necessarily related to a continued acceleration in activity. It's really down to those, those transitory factors that, that policymakers are talking about. But of course, as an investor, you can't just say, well, look, inflation is gonna fade up in the near future, so I'm just gonna sit back and, and watch it happen. You have to invest for what the current environment is. So we think that you need to have some kind of inflation portfolio port- port- protection. Um, and what we've seen is that investors, after a couple of decades of really not having to worry about inflation, just don't have it in their portfolios. So they increasingly we have to start thinking about this. So we see a couple of different things here. So within equities, one of the obvious places is gonna be value because there's still growth, right? There's still growth. You have rising inflation pressures that's a steepening yield curve. So value, specifically financials, should do very, very well in this p- situation. Same thing with cyclicals. You've got a reopening trade. You've got people rushing back in to spend. That does well for cyclicals. But the other side of it is also going to be um, real assets. Now, you know, we hear people talk about commodities all the time. Well, like, commodities have got a tendency of being really volatile. Uh, so as an investor, I don't know if that's the, the volatility that you want to be taking on. So an easy way of playing this is real estate, and that is typically a good diversifier, and it does well in a rising but steady inflation environment
1: yeah see i'm I'm curious how you know obviously if you're an institutional investor, there's any number of ways to to play real estate as kind of an average uh investor individual investor i, I it's a little bit trickier i mean i you know one thing you could do is buy a vacation home, say, or buy a rental property. But that entails a whole bunch of other work that, you know, uh, and risks. Uh, So how uh, how could you play a real estate theme? Is it something as simple as REITs uh, or, you know, uh, other equities tied to the real estate space?
3: No, so REITs is a great place to be. Um. Generally speaking, in real estate, you have to be careful which sectors you're looking at. Uh, We've seen a number of themes play out. If you just think about the retail side during the pandemic, unfortunately, it really has declined from a real estate perspective. So some of those big shopping centers, which were already struggling in the run-up to the pandemic, that deceleration just almost accelerated through the last year or so. What we're seeing increased strength in is data centers. So if you think, all of these companies, the ones that really thrived or even survived during the pandemic, they did so because they used technology to pivot themselves, to pivot their business models. And that's not gonna go into reverse, which means that industrial data centers, anywhere where they can house a lot of those um, technology centers, that's gonna do well. So we would think that look, look at real estate, look at REITs, but really focus on the right sectors.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: So the inflation idea is something that's just coming up a ton uh, among our readers and in the newsroom in general. Uh, it's sort of the you know the topic du jour as you as you watch prices rise, and the Fed has used the term transitory, which um, can mean a lot of things. And to me. It's one thing. It's like with a bubble. It's you can see where the bubble is, but timing when it's going to end, when it's going to pop is the challenge. Uh, spotting it isn't so hard. The timing of where it's going to play out is what does transitory mean to you and how transitory is this going to be?
3: You have honed in on the most important point here with inflation. We all know uh, it, it's here, it's come, you know it's going to continue rising. And we same as the policymakers think it's going to be short-lived. But as you said, nobody knows how long. Now coming into this year, the general view was it will last through the summer and then come full. a lot of those um, inflation pressures driven by supply shortages shortages should fade away. Uh, what we're starting to see now actually is that supply shortages are worse than expected. The rise in prices going a little bit higher than more, higher than expected. Um, And on top of that, we're also seeing inflation expectations increase. So the key things to watch to figure out how long this is going to go on for is inflation expectations and how much of these cost increases are being passed on to consumers. That's going to tell you how sticky inflation is going to be. And I've got to say the jury is really out on that factor.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me, Simi, because you you know explained about the sort of supply bottlenecks and, and shortages, and I hate to use uh, an overused cliche like a perfect storm, but it's like this perfect storm for inflation because you have those shortages and supply bottlenecks on the one end, and then on the demand side, you've got the unleashing of what was a bottleneck during uh, the pandemic. Everyone now is ready to spend and go out and and travel again and all that. So I'm I'm trying to think of how it looks on the other side. Uh when the that transitory period is over, you know, whether it be later this year or the first half of of 2022. I, to me there's almost a, a risk of sort of a, a reversion back the other way and and almost a transitory deflationary period on the other side. Um everyone seems to be worried about a, a more prolonged period of inflation after, you know, uh, this year, but I I wonder if the risk is almost as good uh, for thinking we could see a a transitory deflation period. So tell me if I'm nuts for thinking that, A, and uh, if I'm not nuts, hopefully I'm not too crazy. How would how would that play out in the markets? Would that be a sort of about face and try to try to go back to growth again? Uh, You know, how are you thinking about that other side of the transitory period of inflation?
3: Well, firstly, I don't think you're crazy. I think that <laughs> that is a possibility. You know, if we think about uh, the fact that suppliers are going to be looking at this unleashing of demand, and they can be ramping up their supply over the next couple of months. But what if they go too far? What if they just go too far? A lot of their demand is going to be front-loaded, and as you see, it's it's about unleashing that demand that has been so contained for the last number of months. So I think there is a chance that supply goes too far, demand just doesn't essentially meet it in the end, and then you get that disinflationary pressure is coming. Well, what happens to the market? Well, on one hand, I think the market really starts to get a bit worried because ultimately you've seen monetary policymakers, you've seen fiscal policymakers throw everything they have at this problem. And if they still can't create some kind of inflation, which is a healthy type of inflation, so around that 2% level, I think the market will become quite concerned. So I think from that perspective, the Fed is playing a really difficult game here. They have to get the balance right. Um, and if the market does get freaked, then of course, we have to be shifting into safer assets. We're talking about growth again. Technology, if you're looking at lower bond yields and technology is, is typically your, your best place to hide out.
2: So you mentioned uh, the idea of stickiness of inflation, and that, that intrigues me, um, just the difference between flexible pricing versus sticky pricing. Um, what are you looking at? In terms of the cues for what's a real inflation move, what's a real like hard inflationary move versus, you know, so with with sticky prices, it's something like the, the cost of getting your car fixed doesn't change no matter what happens in the economy, whereas, you know, the cost of gas is very, very reactive to the economy. What are you looking at in terms of gauging how severe things get or how uh, how how much less we need to be concerned about it?
3: So to us, the, there's, there's a couple of key things to be watching out for, which is going to give us an idea of how sticky, so really how long this higher inflation is going to last for. Um, the first thing is inflation expectations. You've got to be looking at not only market inflation expectations, but all the various surveys. Because what we have seen the threat of is as consumers start to see higher prices, they start to expect to themselves, they, they, they react in that way, and that brings forward or extends that inflation pressures that they've already been witnessing. So then it becomes part of the system and you're seeing permanently higher prices. But the second thing is, is companies, how are they going to respond? Now, this is going to be really interesting because over the last year, we've seen savings in the US increase significantly. So you have a new consumer subset who are extremely financially resilient, and consumers And and companies are very aware of this. So if companies decide that, look, our consumers, our clients are now very financially resilient. We can pass on all of the cost increases that we're experiencing to our consumers. Then you are looking at an inflationary spiral, Now, not to the kind of five or six percent level, but inflationary spiral in the current term, meaning kind of the two to two and a half to three percent level, which, of course, as we know from the Fed's perspective, is a little bit above where they want it to be.
1: I just want to rewind a little bit and, and reiterate that Sema said I'm not crazy, Eric. You know, no matter what <laughs> Eric says, I, I've got Sema on my corner, so I, I'm, I'm happy about that. But uh, uh, Seema, I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about the vaccination rates. Uh, I know it's something you've kept an eye on. I think everyone, uh, you know, who's got their eye on uh, global markets is kind of seeing where the sort of advantages are and disadvantages are in vaccination rates and obviously in the U.S., uh, we got out to a strong start on that front. Um, Currently now we're at about, I think a little bit over 50 percent of the population has had at least uh, one shot of of the vaccines. Um, But, you know, as we all know, one of the big growth industries in the U.S. is conspiracy theories and skepticism towards science and experts and, and that sort of thing. So, there, I think there's this concern that we might plateau out a little bit on on vaccination rates that, you know, the people left who are unvaccinated are those who are reluctant to get it for, for whatever reason. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if you're seeing that in other countries, is that mainly a U.S. phenomenon? It, it seems like we are sort of the epicenter of that potential issue of skepticism and reluctance to get a vaccine but I'm curious if you're seeing it uh, anywhere else or if it is kind of unique to the US. But also, how much does it really matter if we do get say above 50% vaccinated? I mean, you know, should the reopening of the economy and the return to normal continue at pace uh even if there is a a certain segment of the population that might still be struggling with COVID? Um if there are enough people are vaccinated that, you know, businesses feel comfortable uh going uh, full capacity and and getting back to normal. How much does it matter if if we sort of plateau here in the US on vaccination rates?
3: Well, I think you're right that the US really is the epicenter of that. But that's because the US is so far ahead with this vaccination process. So you're kind of the guinea pigs here. What we are seeing, though, is in Europe, for example, they do have a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Um, It's really not unusual, even for, for COVID. Actually, you typically see in countries like France, they've always been very reluctant even to take the annual flu vaccine. So this is something that we are expecting. Um, And of course, the the various side effects that have been reported from a couple of the vaccines um, haven't really helped the situation. Now, what we are expecting to see, though, for example, in the U.S., is that we are hitting, we're close to hitting your peak uh, vaccination numbers uh, you can have people who are reluctant you can have people who simply aren't eligible maybe because of age um and then there's gonna be the other ones who say well you know everyone else around us is vaccinated so why would we kind of bother we'll come around to it when it when it works for us does it really matter from an economic perspective in in the best case scenario no it doesn't really matter because all the government cares about um is of course they want to reopen the economy it's really if there's hospitalizations that they that they start to get concerned so if you've got enough people vaccinated then they will continue to push forward with the reopening. The concern starts to arise though, if you get some more of these variants start to circulate. Um, and if those variants circulate, then it becomes more of a concern for the population that isn't vaccinated. And then you get to a point where maybe the government wants to take a bit of a standstill on that, on that factor. And I would point to the UK here on this, where although we have vaccinated a very high percentage of people, we have the variant from India is circulating in the UK, and they are talking already about stopping the reopening.
2: So when you talk about vaccination rates, um, the Fed has pointed to vaccination rates as something that it's looking at in terms of when to react to QE and whatever. Um, are we getting close to a point where the Fed would feel comfortable? I mean, it, it obviously, there are a bunch of other numbers that go Go into that, um, but they've act. They've not really been looking at necessarily the whole data and talking about more of the societal function. Are we close to that point where the Fed can react based on being comfortable that the population is is vaccinated?
3: I think we are getting close to that point. But what we are increasingly seeing is that policymakers are saying, "Look, our country may be pretty healthy, doing pretty well with vaccinations." But they have to look at all the countries, uh, not just even next to them, but all around, because there are continued threats coming in from other countries. You know, we just have to think about India, about Brazil. Um, So I think policymakers will remain pretty cautious until this fight is over. And I unfortunately think that fight is going to continue into 2022.
4: dot
1: com nicholas and company incorporated member sipc and nyse so you know there's kind of this growing uh I, i wouldn't necessarily call it a consensus perhaps yet but uh growing speculation that uh the jackson hole meeting in august will be when the fed at least admits they're thinking about talking about maybe whispering about tapering um how are you looking at that meeting? Do you think it's it's uh, a live one that that we're all going to have to keep an eye on, or I, I guess it, just wait and see?
3: I think that we have to be watching Jackson Hole very, very carefully. You know, when we've talked about the Fed, you know, we know that, of course, with the economic reopening, with the kind of pace of of growth that we're saying we're seeing, they must be talking about tapering behind closed doors. They must be talking about it. But this is a very, very careful process that they're going to take where they start, as you said, they start to whisper about it. We start to hear hints. And then at Jackson Hole, hopefully they talk a little bit more openly to the market and prepare the market for the start. So it doesn't start in Jackson Hole, but it starts a couple of months later. And I think over the last number of years, we have become accustomed to Jackson Hole being that one event that all market makers, all investors need to watch very carefully.
2: So now that we're talking about Jackson Hole and the Fed, uh, if you're a bond investor, how do you view this now? You've, you know, we were at zero or close to it. Uh, and now we're coming well off those levels. Uh, and, you know, r- yields are going up, um, bonds are falling, and it just sort of seems like an ex- inexorable rise. Uh, how, if you are a fixed income guy or, or woman, uh, how do you position yourself to handle this if this is going to be ongoing and the Fed is actually going to start doing some Q, you know, getting rid of some of that stimulus?
3: Yeah, absolutely. When we when we think about this, if you think the tapering is inevitable, even if you're worried about the timing, et cetera, we think it's inevitable, in which case there will be upward pressure on bond yields from here. So what does a fixed income investor do? Well, look, it is... Undoubtedly, it's a challenging environment for a fixed income investor. But what we think you need to do now is be a little bit innovative. Start thinking a little bit outside the box. Um, You need to get that additional yield. We're thinking preferred securities. We're thinking emerging market debt, high yield, private credit, anywhere where you can get that additional pickup because increasingly that is so difficult to find within fixed income.
1: And that uh, that allows me to talk my book a little bit here, Eric, too, and read Seema's thoughts on 6040 in last week's Business Week, where she talks about the barbell with EM and corporate credit on one side and and safe treasuries on the other. I think that's a uh, an interesting way to approach it. Um, see, but one more thing and then we'll end this interrogation. Sometimes I feel like we were interrogating uh, someone like the FBI does. So I, I I apologize for all these questions, but one more and then we'll get to the crazy things. Um you had a, a really interesting point in a note recently in which you talked about, um, and I'll just read straight from your note. Uh, this has basically been the largest U.S. fiscal injection since World War II. What's interesting is, though, it boosts the global economy. Um, and I wonder, I think that's a point that that's lost on a lot of U.S.-based investors is how, you know, U.S. prosperity can can be a boom for emerging markets, uh, other developed markets around the world, talk to us about that spillover effect from a really buoyant u s consumer. i mean, is is it as simple as a matter of just you know going going long on the countries where we run big trade deficits with, or is it is there more to it? how would you how do you sort of express a global bullishness based on u uh, s. consumers with these inflated savings rates and lots of stimulus money slashing around
3: you know. It- It's funny because when we do these presentations, uh, global presentations, this year, increasingly, we are talking about the U.S. And the reason is that the U.S. is it's absolutely reinstating that global reflation narrative. And as you said, that American Rescue Act um, as one of the largest government interventions since World War II is so significant that the spillovers to the rest of the world um, actually pick up growth in other countries. So if we look at the OECD, for example, has done a couple of studies on this, and they think that the American Rescue Plan, on its own, lifts global growth this year by 1%. And if you're thinking about the, the closest countries, like Canada, Mexico, that's around 1% to 1.25%, just from that fiscal stimulus in the U.S., uh, all the way to China, to Europe, where it's about 0.5%. So together, this is really important. And you know what we've seen this year in the U.S. is that you have had this perfect conjunction of uh, vaccinations enabling that reopening, plus this incredible fiscal stimulus. So now you have a combination of not just the opportunity to spend because of reopening, but also the ability to spend. And together, those two factors create such a strong push uh, into the U.S. economy and then leaking out to the rest of the world
1: that's yep. it's a really, uh, you know, it's I think it's a point that uh, a lot of American we, we Americans speak can be very uh, self-reflective and we forget about the rest of the world sometimes. And I think that's a very interesting way to play the the sort of pumped up savings of the American consumer and, and all this stimulus money going around. So uh, definitely good food for thought. Um, as is uh, our next segment, which uh, fans of the podcast know well, the, the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Stand
2: clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week.
0: I, you
1: know, I'm going to get things started. Um, Seaman, I got a sneak peek at Eric's crazy things. I will say both of ours involve real assets, which I know you're, you're bullish on. Probably, I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not the type of real assets you're, you would be bullish on necessarily, especially Eric's, but Mine maybe. and I'll, I'll start with mine because I, I, I find it interesting. You know, f- obviously for an investor, the biggest nightmare you could ever have is a 100% loss, right? Would you guys agree with that? Yes. Yeah. What What could be worse than a 100% loss? Well, in Las Vegas, there's some innovation on this where we've got a story about a loss bigger than 100%, a 120% loss on a Las Vegas mall loan. And I'm just going to read the top of the story by our colleague Adam Tempkin. A loan tied to a beleaguered mall outside of Las Vegas realized a loss of 120% after the shopping center sold for about the same price as a condo. (laughs) The loan, which had a current balance of $62.2 million, was completely written down after the Prism outlets were liquidated for just over $400,000. When accounting for uh, $11.5 million in fees and reimbursements owned to the master services for advances made, the realized loss came out to 74 million. So you, investors lost 74 million on a $62 million loan because of all the fees and whatnot. But Seema, to your point, someone bought a full shopping center in Las Vegas for 400 grand, the price of a two bedroom condo on the, on the Vegas Strip. So uh, bargains galore in real estate if you have the, the ability to pounce on them, it, it, it's fascinating. And of course, you know, there are people short this, the credit here, Uh, Carl Icahn, I think, making a fortune being short uh, the the credit index associated with this. But uh, uh, to your point, Seam, I think it talks to it speaks to the the sort of distressed real estate that that is a great opportunity out there still, even at this point of the reopening.
3: It it is. It is that there are a lot of opportunities, but there's a lot of potholes. So so pick your investment, even in real estate, very, very wisely.
1: Right. Right. And Eric's going to talk to us about another real asset, which which I, I got to give it to you, Eric. First time on the show when you came big with the crazy thing. This is a good one.
2: <laughs> well, th- this was something that actually is near and dear. And seem, I really hope you actually aren't tracking this. <laughs> uh th- this is something that's near and dear to my family's heart. My son uh, is a big animal lover and took classes at the New York Zoological Society and is a major majorly involved in anti poaching. And uh, what I what I noticed or what we saw was this the rise. It's called the Rhizotope Project where uh there's poaching of rhinos for their horns in South Africa. Last year alone, 400 were killed illegally. Um, and it's because the horns are used in traditional medicine and have value beyond what the actual animal is. So they'll kill the animal just to take the horns. So what they're doing or what they're Testing is injecting the horns with radioactive material in order to make the horns less desirable because if you're using them for medicine and you have radioactive material that sort of defeats the purpose so they're starting to do this in in South Africa where and it's a Russian company and uh, another private organization are literally tracking uh There are a bunch of different trackers that track rhino movements, and they're now catching them, injecting them with this radioactive material. And the question is whether the material actually gets into their bodies and poisons these rhinos, basically subverting the entire idea of the project, or if this is a way to get people to no longer buy rhino horns uh and i just thought it was a a fascinating you know damned if you do damned if you don't kind of story where they're they're trying to save these rhinos and uh you know it's like we may have to burn the village in order to save it
1: i I, go ahead sima i know i i i I know you're not investing in rhino horns but uh please
2: don't
3: (laughs) that is incredible so you know I worry. I worry on many different parts of that, but I, I just also hope that the, the, the material doesn't make them, give them superpowers. I have been chased <laughs> by a rhino in Kenya before, and it yes. was a scary, scary experience. So let's hope they can't run even faster than they than they did that, at that point.
1: That was my thought too, Simo. I don't know if they showed the Incredible Hulk in, in uh, England back in the day, but Eric and I grew up watching The Incredible Hulk. I think all of us who saw that show realize you do not mess with radioactivity like that. If You do not want an Incredible Hulk rhino on the loose.
2: No, no, nobody wants that.
1: But my other thought is, and I, I agree with you, Eric. I'm an animal lover too. I, I hate the idea of poaching. But as a markets guy, I, 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 I like that story. I felt it was lacking in the price discovery aspect though in, in that what does a rhino horn cost? And I feel like, and I hate to, I hate to be the guy to say this, But I feel like this project could be bullish for rhino horn prices if they reduce the the supply of rhinos that are not Incredible Hulk radioactive rhinos.
2: I'm just going to throw that out there. I had not even considered that. What if it's the unintended consequences? See, this is what economics is all about. These are the externalities that you don't predict where suddenly, you know, the the idea of uncontaminated rhino horns makes them even more valuable. And now we're going to go after the uh, non-radioactive rhinos in order to really to, to really do this. Yeah, it's-, um, it's uh, Yeah, maybe you create right a hand. new
1: market. freaking and action. I know, I feel like Jeff Goldblum in, in Jurassic Park with all the <laughs> philosophical connotations going through my head, but but all I can think of is the, the bullish price forecast for rhino horns uh, as a
2: result. We were warned. We,
1: we, were, we were warned. All right, Seema, I I, uh, I know you've been on the show before and you've always delivered with a crazy thing. Eric's is, I'm, I'm, I gotta say, Eric's is tough to, tough to top. Despite the nebulous market, Connection. I, I, I'm okay with that. I, as as regular listeners know, it, it is a market. There is a market for rhino horns. So, we'll, so we'll allow. It. But Simo, what's the craziest thing you've seen recently?
3: Yeah, look, there's a market for everything. Let's remember that. <laughs> uh, mine is boring by comparison because mine is playing old markets again. Um, I just want to celebrate ourselves, congratulate ourselves for for not talking cryptocurrency on this one. <laughs> um, so, in a, in an area where we're not. You know, governments are no longer worried about deficits, that they're happy to spend as much as necessary. Let me take you back uh, 10 years or so when, when the Greek sovereign debt crisis happened and, and markets really, really cared about how much, <clears throat> how much government, they, government debt they had. Well, fast forward to today, you have a Greek government debt over 200 percent of GDP. And yet the spread of Greek 10-year yields over Bunds has fallen to its narrowest level since 2008. It's just 107 basis points. And that is despite having government debt accelerate from, from that point 10 years ago. So something has turned upside down in markets. And to me, that is pretty crazy if you have that good memory of 10 years ago.
1: I'm completely fascinated with that as well. I mean, what that spread peaked at, I don't know, what was it? The 1,500 basis points or something like that way back in in 2010? I know it was above a 10% spread.
3: Uh, I remember like, it hitting the 180 or so at one yeah. point in one
1: day. But so I guess the question, and I, I've asked others on the on the show about this So to me, that leads me to believe that the whole notion of austerity is kind of dead in Europe now. Is that, do you think that's true or is it, is people just playing the the temporary retirement of austerity?
3: I think in Europe it's temporary. You know, we talk, we've seen that European equity markets do really, really well the last few weeks and everyone's very hopeful for the summer, which I, I share probably that optimism for the summer, but beyond that, uh, I think Europe returns to its position as perennial disappointment, partly because it will refer to that fiscal tightening again, and it cannot let go of that feeling where they need to hold onto their fiscal purses.
1: Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. Yeah, and I uh, just so I, I that, that seems like a, a rented sort of temporary trade to be bullish Greek debt, you know, until until that this phase passes, I guess.
3: Yeah, ride ride that Greek market as long as you can. <laughs>
2: Well, I think and Germany isn't going away, uh, yeah, then right. they're constantly Austerian. So as soon as things level out, I would assume we'll start hearing from them about uh, the need for austerity economics again. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, speaking of writing things as far as we can, I think we've written this uh, podcast as far as we can. Seema, it is always such a great pleasure to, to catch up with you and hear your thoughts. Uh, you know, you're always welcome back on the show and hopefully we can we can get you back again soon.
3: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be back with you guys.
1: And Eric Weiner, you can message me with everything I got wrong on, on this afterwards.
2: I've been taking notes.
1: Don't worry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you both. It's been a, it's been a real treat. What goes up? will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Eric Wiener is at Eric J. Wiener one You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pell of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Foreheads. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.